The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, companies are having to do more to keep their best workers from walking. You've no doubt seen the stories lately about tech companies that are laying off thousands of people. But outside big tech, a lot of companies, in the U.S. especially, are having the opposite problem. In this tight labor market, there are more jobs open than workers willing to fill them. Potential hires are demanding better pay and better treatment, and some employers are starting to listen. My colleagues Nicole Bullock and Matthew Boyle in New York are keeping a close eye on all of this for WorkShift. That's a whole area of news coverage here at Bloomberg that's all about the future of work. They're here with me now to tell us about the ways the relationship between employers and employees is changing. Nicole and Matt, you write all about ruptures and changes in the workplace, and we are seeing a lot of them now. One of the biggest is how many employers in this market are having to change the way they do things to attract and keep people. Matt, what does that look like in the workplace? Well, yeah, Wes, it's really playing out in sort of a multitude of ways. But one thing that's that's clear, as you said, is that the number of available jobs for every unemployed worker, I think it's at around 1.7 now. It had been as high as two. I mean, that is amazing. And at a time when uh, we have all these changes to workplace norms and the whole idea of, you know, who we're working for, where we work, why we work is being upended and changed and redefined. Companies are really scrambling to find highly skilled people. So what they're going to have to do is, is just to get a bit more creative, you know, rather than just say, here's the job, here's the salary. It's now a conversation around, can this job be remote? How often can it be remote? What sort of benefits are you going to give me? And is this a job where I can find some purpose? We keep hearing this word purpose. There is a strong sense that I've seen that people also want to work for an organization that does have some sort of deeper purpose that aligns with their values. I think what we've seen is a combination of these supply-demand dynamics that you talk about coming right after a time that basically had a lot of people around the world, not just in the U.S., really kind of pushing the pause button on their daily grind, which caused them to really reassess against the backdrop of a global pandemic what they wanted out of their lives in general, but also out of their work lives. Yes, people were resigning, but it wasn't like, you know, what you may have read that they were resigning to go live on the beach or just sit in a hammock all day. They were resigning for something better. And whether that was better pay, uh, an organization that valued them more or what, this reassessment is something that's still obviously still ongoing. People still have tons of choices. 
It's been maybe curtailed a bit in certain sectors, especially tech, where you're seeing layoffs. We now have confirmation, Rich, from Amazon, a memo from the CEO to staff that they will be cutting more than 18,000 jobs, as mentioned, much more than previously expected going into the end of the year. The parent of Snapchat plans to lay off about 20% of its nearly 6,500 employees. Facebook's parent, Meta, reportedly getting ready to lay off what could be thousands of workers one of the biggest layoffs yet that we've seen. But again, you know, compared to pre-pandemic levels, layoffs are still below historical levels. We have to remember that because we all get so excited when Amazon and Salesforce lay off thousands of people. And I'm not saying those aren't big moves, but historically since, you know, people still have options. When you see a tech worker post on LinkedIn, I just lost my job at Meta or Salesforce. And within minutes, you've got half a dozen recruiters saying, you know, we've got something for you. So it's really a sort of a very active time right now in the job market. So one of the interesting aspects is the extent to which this has persisted. We're coming into what will be the fourth year of the COVID reality, and we're still talking about return to office, working from home, flexible work. And a year ago, when Matt and I first came together to write about workplace topics in the future of work, the discussion was, oh, this will be over by the end of 2022. And it's not at all. In fact, you know, every day we're writing about what any company from Apple to Harley-Davidson to any other brand name, you know, what they're doing on a case-by-case basis to address the push-pull of what their workers want, what their culture has been historically, and what bosses on the ground and workers on the ground need to do to conduct their daily life and be productive at the office or, you know, whatever their workplace is. So let's talk about some specific examples. You cover all kinds of companies and you look at the ways that they're doing it. And there's a lot of different ways. What are some companies that are really leaning forward to attract new workers and keep the ones they have happy? I mean, Airbnb is a good example. They got a lot of attention early in the pandemic for their remote work uh, policy. Basically, I think it was 2021 where not only did they say, you know, you can work from anywhere, they also eliminated pay tiers based on whether you worked remotely. That's a little known issue, but a huge one. Let's say you're working in San Francisco and you wanted to or needed to live in, in Boise, Idaho. Historically, a company like Airbnb or Meta, Facebook, would say, okay, that's fine. You're going to take a 15% pay cut because you're living in a less expensive region compared to San Francisco. That's caused a lot of companies to lose workers, especially as cities like Boise and others have become much more popular places to live during the pandemic because of the rise of remote work. So what Airbnb did is just say, okay, we're eliminating these pay tiers based on location stuff and allow you to work up to 90 days a year from any region where Airbnb operates in. Of course, it, it helps that Airbnb has millions of, of places you can live and, and work uh, under their rubric, and their employees probably get a little bit of a discount there. But they want to work with cities to lure more remote workers to those places. So what's happening there, I think, is one uh, pretty fascinating example. Another example that we've written about is Harley-Davidson. And this is an interesting one because their CEO has said that he realized himself during the pandemic that flexible work was beneficial to his life. And and so he thinks that this is, from a work-life balance standpoint, great for his employees. But he was also very forthcoming about the fact that they're creating an e-bike and they need to attract the best and the brightest from places like Tesla. 
So he's also using this policy as a way to try to attract people who have this expertise but are working at other places that may not be so into offering that kind of flexibility. And, you know, Tesla is one of the main examples where Elon Musk basically said, you're coming in the office or you're fired. So what happens to people who are working in, say, New York City or San Francisco, and they see that people have moved to a lower-cost city and they're still making the same pay. Are they getting a pay raise, or are they just uh, sort of penalized for not moving out? Yeah, so I I must say, yeah, you're not going to get additional pay if you stay in an expensive city like uh, San Francisco or New York. You're not going to get combat pay or something uh, like that. But it is, again, causing a real reassessment for people to think, okay, you know, if I'm working at a company that is going to dock me if I move to a less expensive region of of the world. But think of how many New Yorkers moved up to the Catskills and are still up there. You know, it really makes you think about, is this the place where I want to be if my company is going to, you know, reduce my pay for living in a less expensive part of the country? Maybe I do need to be working somewhere else, you know, that won't do this. And Airbnb is a good example, but there's many others over the past 12 to 18 months that have eliminated those uh, location-based tiers, as we call them, uh, just seeing that they're sort of a relic of the past, really. And all of these interesting aspects around flexible work or the ability to work in a flexible environment or not, it's interesting that these have emerged as bargaining chips for both employees and employers. So both in terms, as we've talked about, as retention tools, but also as ways to thin the ranks without actually announcing layoffs. So, you, you know, you can say everybody needs to be back here or thank you for your service. You know, as the economy is entering uncertain times and has been on uncertain times, this is also a way that companies can do the opposite, right? They can maybe trim down a bit without having to say we're laying off X number of people. Yeah, but the risk there is the people you lose when you do that is of probably course. your best people, the people you do not want to lose at all who have the ability to just go down the street. Yeah, interesting, you know, a good example of that, potentially, we don't know all the details in this, but at Twitter, Elon said, you know, no more flexible work and then had to kind of walk back a little bit because, you know, perhaps too many people took him up on it. Twitter closing its offices until Monday. The company facing, as we now know, a mass exodus. This after, of course, Elon Musk gave employees an ultimatum to commit to a hardcore environment or leave. Workers seem to be taking the latter option uh, and do seem to be leaving. Yeah, not only did he have to hire people back that he fired who he realized he then needed, it right. was also like, oh, wait a minute, maybe flexible work could, you know, be a thing here. Right, you know, exactly. which is just hilarious when someone like that comes to this conclusion that we all came to long ago. Nicole, another thing that you hear more and more about is this idea of moving to a four-day work week, which is something that employers would just dismiss out of hand not too long ago. And now it seems to be getting some traction. Yes, that that's true. This idea of doing a four-day work week, whether it's an actual four-day Monday through Thursday, have Friday off, or as sort of a um, catch-all for more flexibility, this is really taking hold. There's been several pilots all over the world, really. The one probably that got the most attention was one in the UK and the range of companies that are doing these is everything from a local fish and chip shop to uh, not in the UK but Unilever is one of the big names you know in terms of a large corporation doing these and and the early findings at least have been that 
it does not affect productivity. So productivity does not go down. And that's really the metric that perhaps has has had this stick a bit more is the concern is, am I going to get the same amount of work out of fewer hours? The other aspect of this is that you work four days or 36 hours, however you want to do that, but you keep the same pay, right? That's the linchpin here. So the productivity really needs to stay there. What really struck me, Nicole, with the four-day workweek pilot was the amount of planning that doing this requires. You don't just flip a switch on Monday and say, okay, guys, now we're doing a four-day workweek. Isn't this great? I think one of the firms in the UK pilot actually said something like, you know, planning for the four-day workweek resulted in like six-day workweeks for us for a few months to figure out how to get this right. Because there are many ways you can do this. It's not just, you know, Monday, Thursday. It could be based on hours. It could be based on roles. There are always going to be maybe certain roles where, you know, this is just not going to suit. So every company is different, whether you're Unilever, which did the results there. They did it in uh, New Zealand, and they're actually extending it to Australia now. Or you're just a fish and chip shop in the UK that was also uh, doing this, but trying to figure out, okay, how do we do a four-day work week, but account for the fact that, you know, at certain times of the week, there's a huge demand for fish and chips, of course. So we want to have workers there. We don't want everybody to be on their, you know, day off on that. So every business is certainly different here, but I think the key really is the amount of planning that this takes is substantial. And so not just going into this thinking, okay, this will be wonderful. We'll just flip a switch. Matt, one of the aspects of the planning was starting by having people look at what tasks they can eliminate. For example, you know, is there something that you're doing that that you really don't need to be doing? And I think that's part of the appeal here, because if any of us look at our schedules, I mean, I can think of probably three things that I do because they're just part of the process that I've been doing for quite a long time that really is not adding that much value. Yeah, like meetings, for example. I mean, even if you don't choose to do a four-day work week, even if you just reduce the number of recurring meetings, let's say, or, you know, useless meetings, that's probably a good thing as well and a benefit to all. Nicole and Matt, please stay with me. We'll continue our conversation after the break. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Matt, before the break, you mentioned how a lot of people think that cutting back on meetings would make our work lives better. At the beginning of the year, at least one well-known company actually announced they were killing most meetings. Do you think that's going to work or are meetings just going to keep creeping back? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, Wes. I mean, Shopify is uh, sort of become a poster child for this. They announced a new policy at the beginning of this year where they were going to get rid of every recurring meeting with more than two people and limit big meetings to just one six-hour window 
on Thursday. So if you wanted to have an all-hands engineering meeting, you could only do it in that window. And they also, which was also intriguing to me, it were encouraging people or telling managers to encourage the rank and file to decline meetings. From what I've found in the research I've looked at at meetings is that that is often the biggest problem. We just accept every meeting we're invited to because we don't want to annoy the meeting planner or we think we'll miss something, you know, in, in the meeting that's said at the meeting and then I'm out of the loop. Anyway, so Shopify has done this, but to your point of, you know, are they going to creep back? I think they might. I got a lot of comments after I wrote this story that said, look, Shopify and other companies that are doing this so-called calendar purge, you know, they're just going after the symptom, not the disease. So I think it'd be really interesting to check back with Shopify in August or September and be like, hey guys, how's it going? So Matt, how much do you think meetings moving to Zoom during the pandemic have accelerated this, again, another reassessment of the work process. Because you have, for example, this happens to us all the time, you have a meeting and half the group is in the office, but everybody's on Zoom. Maybe even Matt and I sitting next to each other. Or, you know, people are on on Zoom, theoretically in the meeting, but really just kind of multitasking, half paying attention, Yeah, it has been a huge problem. That was one of the main issues early on when companies started getting people back to the office, the the early RTO movement, let's call it, where people were coming back and spending more than half of their day on Zoom calls with people who were still virtual or remote. And you even had interns then, you know, coming in for their summer internship, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and then looking around and saying, Where, wait, where's my manager? Exactly. Oh, he's he's working remotely from, you know, Thailand? Oh, great. So why am I here and how am I going to get mentored? Um, so you're right. This has led to part of the big reassessment here, particularly around the value of offices and making sure that you have an intention, a uh, purpose for coming to the office. Nicole, things like the four-day work week and getting rid of meetings, they both point to something workers say they want. They want better control of their time. They don't want their bosses crashing into their time at home after hours with all kinds of demands that make them feel like they're expected to be tethered to their jobs day and night. So time is one reason why nobody wants to commute anymore. We've had some interesting research Uh, that we've written about showing that people have used the time they've saved from commuting to sleep. So apparently we're all sleep deprived. I mean, there's also some really interesting research from Microsoft that, you know, they make Teams, which is the collaboration software that a lot of us use. And what they found when they looked at the data of the peaks of usage of Teams software, they found what they call this third wave of productivity after 10 p.m. And a lot of it was from parents who had to, you know, deal with, you know, household chores and kids and dinner in, let's say, that 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. time frame. And then only when 10 p.m. rolled around did they actually have time for themselves and were spending it going back on Teams and answering emails and, and sending, you know, blasting stuff out, getting work done, essentially. Really don't think that's a particularly good thing, but now that we have access to all this data from, you know, who's using what particular workplace productivity platform, it's really showing us some interesting things. A lot of what you're describing here gets at another imbalance workers complain about, which is that they feel like they're expected to be completely loyal to the company and go above and beyond for sometimes no extra pay, but that the company doesn't have to be as loyal to them. You know, they get hassled if they need a sick day or they can be fired at a moment's notice, even though they're supposed to give two weeks if they quit. 
And more employees are starting to wonder why they're working so hard to make the executives and shareholders of the company even richer while their own pay can't keep up with inflation. So this is, I think, a big factor behind what has been probably one of the biggest buzzwords of the last, you know, six, six months or so, which is this whole idea around quiet quitting. Now the problem has morphed into its own American version, what some people call quiet quitting, where employees show up, but make sure that they do just what they are required and no more. Contrary to what the name actually says, it's not really quitting. You're just doing the basics of your job and that's it and nothing more. And it's been an incredibly controversial topic that has made its way all the way to Davos and had a whole panel dedicated to it. I think it also speaks to people really wanting more work-life balance, which has been as well a big topic of the kind of pandemic era is people realizing that they just wanted something else out of life than working it all away and, you know, ending up in old age. And, you know, what, what was the point of that, really? Especially when the boundaries between work and life, of course, broke down completely when, when we all went remote. So many workplace norms have broken down, uh, including the distinction between, you know, our work time and our home time. I always loved my commute historically before COVID. It was about an hour, which for a New Yorker is typical, but that was my time to sort of get rid of the work, my work, you know, self and put on my home self and become a, a dad and a husband or, you know, a leave soccer your job coach. At work. Exactly. So just leave it there. Now we're never leaving our job at work. We're never leaving it anywhere, unfortunately. Um, so I think to your point, Wes, this has caused this increase in frustration of if I'm always, always working, if it's really 24-7 and my employer can get to me when, whenever they want. Yet, of course, if I have a problem, you know, good luck finding help there if it's related to mental health or stress. So, you know, I might just sort of quietly give up a little bit and, and just get my paycheck and, and do that. You know, some of the initial response to, to this quiet quitting phenomenon was that, oh, it's just slacking off. You know, this is not nothing new. Slackers have been around forever. And the pushback has been, no, it's actually not that. This is about preserving some of these boundaries. And also, we even interviewed some people who were keeping kind of a day job that had a steady, attractive salary in order to get their own business going. So it wasn't that they were finishing up at 5 p.m. and watching Netflix for binge-watching whatever their favorite show is. They were actually quiet quitting in order to create the job that they wanted. Another thing that people who work in retail and work in the service industries, restaurant, bars, hotels, complain about is that they're expected to be on call every day, even on their days off. And if a manager calls them or texts them now and says, I need you to come in, they're expected to come in on a moment's notice. Are companies starting to address the scheduling problem where people feel like even when they're off, they're not really off? Well, well, no. The way they address it was by implementing these automated labor scheduling software bots, basically, that optimize to know exactly when demand is high, if it's a Walmart store or a bar or restaurant, and they, you know, they match the staffing to fit. But the problem for workers, of course, is they often don't know you know, until a day or so or a week or so, what their schedule is actually going to be because, you know, the software is optimizing, but it's certainly minimizing the experience of the employee who's then told, as you say, you know, well, we need you in on Tuesday suddenly. Well, I can't, you know, I need to take my kid to the doctor. Well, too bad. 
you know, workers don't have a heck of a lot of leverage to say no. Meanwhile, though, of course, we have this shortage. So you would hope that employers are being perhaps a bit more lenient. But these labor optimizing schedules, I mean, they're just so you know useful and they are so ubiquitous that I don't see employees going against the conclusions there to, to suit the needs of an individual employee. It's just they're so embedded, I think, which is a problem. We'll be right back. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. In other countries where there's more of a tradition of worker protections, there have been a lot of movements to kind of change the law to enshrine more worker protections. Can you talk a bit about what's happening? It's happening around the world, really, particularly in Europe, where lawmakers have urged the European Commission to propose new rules that would let employees switch off from work-related tasks and electronic communication, email, outside of office hours. They call it the right to disconnect, and it's happening in places like the Netherlands, in Ireland. You're also seeing laws in certain countries where they're trying to codify the right to remote work. So basically saying every citizen has the right to ask for remote work in the United Kingdom. Workers there can now, or at least there's been proposed legislation that workers could ask to work remotely on the first day of their job rather than having to wait weeks or months, as is normally the case. So we are seeing a lot of momentum and movement outside uh, the U.S., at, at least uh, related to this right to disconnect. Uh, even Portugal had a law as well saying your manager can call you after business hours. But again, it gets complicated, though, because define, you know, what's after business hours these days. And let's say a, a Portuguese worker wants to, you know, take a, a yoga class during the day and work later on. Is it OK for the manager to contact them later on when they're, you know, back into sort of a more productive mode? But by and large, Wes, I mean, there is a huge amount of momentum swelling to codify this, to sort of write rules for how do you request remote work? How long does your company have to respond? What can they, how can they, you know, if they refuse on what grounds? I mean, obviously, if you're a construction worker, you need to be on the construction site. But I think, you know, the rules are really being rewritten left, right and center outside the U.S. right now. Do you think that U.S. companies giving the pressure on them to attract new workers are looking at some of these examples and maybe make some changes? Well, I mean, we still don't have, you know, paid leave on a federal level in the U.S. What does that say? We're basically the only industrialized nation that uh, that, that still doesn't have. I think you're going to see movement, Wes, in state by state. The Federal Trade Commission recently came out and said they want to ban non-compete clauses entirely, um, which is a, a movement that we've only seen thus far on the state level. And those are clauses, of course, that prevent a worker from taking another job in the same industry or opening a business in the same industry that would compete with their previous employer. They're very stifling to innovation. They're stifling to wages and just career opportunities. You know, there are also uh, regulations and things pending in state houses around, you know, things like uh, anti-bullying, for example, just healthy workplace laws. But on a federal level, especially with this current divided Congress, 
I don't hold out a lot of hope that we're going to see, you know, something that we've seen in like Ireland or, or the Netherlands. And sort of uh, coming full circle on this discussion, right now in the U.S., it seems very contingent upon the supply and demand dynamics of a particular industry, of a particular company, and of the workers themselves, really. In the U.S., I, I agree with Matt. I don't think on a federal level we'll see much beyond what the FTC is trying to do anytime soon. And it's really just playing out company by company, industry by industry, and worker by worker. If you're in a highly sought after field and you are, have tremendous expertise in what you're doing and you're very highly rated at your company by your bosses, then I think you have tons of leverage right now to potentially take advantage of a broader environment where people are talking about flexible work and work-life balance demanding better pay. And we're seeing this, you know, even in some places that are unexpected. Areas like retail, hospitality, and the restaurant industry, it's a, an industry that really has, is at the heart of worker shortage. So I can't tell you how many times I walk by a store, a retail store in Manhattan or a restaurant in my neighborhood in Brooklyn and see a Help Wanted sign. Nicole Bullock, Matthew Boyle, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You can read more WorkShift coverage from Nicole Bullock and Matthew Boyle at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Katherine Fink. Our producer is Federica Romaniello, and our associate producer is Zenab Siddiqui. Rafael Amsili is our sound engineer, and our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.